Welcome to Public Health On Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Our focus is the novel coronavirus. I'm Josh Sharfstein, a faculty member at Johns Hopkins and also a former secretary of Maryland's health department. Our goal with this podcast is to bring evidence and experts to help you understand today's news about the novel coronavirus and what it means for tomorrow. If you have questions, you can email them to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. That's publichealthquestion at jhu.edu for future podcast episodes. Today, I speak with Dr. Panagis Kaliatsatos, a physician at Johns Hopkins with two jobs in the COVID-19 pandemic, taking care of critically ill patients in the intensive care unit and engaging across the city with community leaders about how to prevent illness. Let's listen. Dr. Galliot Satos, thank you so much for joining me. I want to talk about the uh, work you do both inside and outside of the hospital on COVID-19. No, excellent. Thank you, Dr. Sharfstein. It's an honor to be joining you in this uh, podcast, and I'm excited in order to share kind of insight into both worlds. So let's start with inside the hospital. So when were you last in the hospital taking care of coronavirus patients? So just last week, I was in the hospital for a week straight. My colleagues and I in the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care were about a week on, two weeks off. And that week that we were on, I don't feel like I've worked that hard since probably intern-year in regards to the amount of hours that are spent in the hospital, as well as just putting out as many fires from clinical perspectives. It's just a lot of sick patients, even if it's not the most diverse of diagnoses that we're seeing. But COVID-19 is just having such dire ramifications on our patients that we try to be at the bedside as much as possible in an effort to try to protect these patients as we manage them. And so a typical day starts when, if you're on service? So a typical day probably starts at about... so. I connect with the team around 6 a.m. just to see how the overnight went. The overnight has actually been one of the more tiring experiences for everyone. Our patients, if they do crash or they do worse, it's going to happen over the nighttime hours. There's biological reasons that people have been speculating, especially on our team with the sleep medicine doctors. And then there's just other speculations as well. But yes, overnight's usually more dire consequences are happening to patients. So 6 a.m., I'm trying to regroup and see how everyone's doing. About 7.30 a.m., I roll into the hospital and do my pre-rounds, checking in actually first with the nursing staff to see how they are. For our nursing colleagues, it's really seemed to be taking a big toll with them, both emotionally and added context that many critical care nurses often experience. Patients are in their worst state, both physically and mentally, but the extra layer of protecting themselves is very evident when you talk to our nursing colleagues. They're the ones with the patient's by the bedside more frequently. So my first job when I walk in is just a touch base with our nursing colleagues. How are they? How's everyone doing? And just getting any concerns, especially does everyone have the proper PPE? Were there any issues with securing the right equipment we needed overnight? And do we have the right stuff moving forward? Then usually by 8.30 a.m., we gather with the team in order to kick off rounds. And then how long are you in the hospital during the day? So rounds usually, because of this, the biggest challenge with rounds, so for those who have seen normal intensive care unit rounds, and I imagine there's variability from hospital to hospital, usually you're, you're right there outside of the patient's room, and then you enter and just talk with a patient. The challenge that we have with COVID-19 ICUs 
is that communication is much harder. Everyone is in PPE gear. So whether you're in an N95 or just a full uh, gown, the communication is just challenging. People are trying to be as vocal as possible and taking extra steps through that. So there's more of a time consumption on rounds. And then going in by the bedside, we usually reserve it until after rounds just to be able to check in on patients. And that in of itself is an extra step in preparing, gowning appropriately, and so forth. So I would say as rounds may kick off at 8.30, they probably aren't finishing until about 12, 12.30. And then after that, it's really making sure our sickest patients have all the resources they need allocated to them for that rest of the day and touching base with families. We, we've always emphasized the humanity of the intensive care unit, getting families to listen on our rounds, being by the bedside as we talk to them and their loved ones. And that variable, uh, Dr. Sharfstein, has been, that variable has been one of the first things that has been gutted by this virus. It is that humanity aspect that we've always advocated for because in the ICU, patients have lost the ability to be their own voice. And now, you know, trying to make sure families feel like they're up to date, the families are listening into everything that's going on, it is a challenge. None of them are in the hospital, right? No, the only times I've actually had families come in is never for good reasons. The only way I can get the hospital to, uh, to allow, and rightly so with our infectious control policy, but it's mainly for end-of-life care. So the only family members I've, I've invited in uh, during my times in the COVID-19 ICU has been for withdrawal of care. So you're right. I mean, family isn't there. So that my when rounds end and there's a brief lunch period, it is usually about four hours afterwards of communicating with as many family members as possible that I feel responsible to share as an attending physician and then continue to check in with my team to make sure they're doing okay with these really sick patients. So then when do you walk out of the intensive care unit usually? I probably leave, I think the earliest I left was six o'clock and then the latest I've gone home was 10 o'clock at night. I will say there's, there's usually a hospital shower that I take part in and I see this uh, only to add because that's what I and a lot of my colleagues are doing before we leave the hospital. We are making sure we remove all that, those clothings, taking a shower. That way we're not bringing it to whatever respective place of home we are calling for the time we are, we're working. Now, and then the next day you're up early to do it all again. Do it all again, correct. Now, some days you're not in the hospital. And those days you've been spending time out in Baltimore. Tell me what a typical day in Baltimore would look like. Yeah, so the typical days now, a lot of them are still filled with phone calls or Zooms or, and so forth. And it's really just listening to the community leaders from faith-based organizations to schools to housing units. And it's just hearing what their biggest concerns are. Actually, one that came for an example over this past weekend was a conversation of an inheritance of a new tenant to live in a housing unit uh, really reserved for women of domestic violence. And this housing unit, the challenge was the tenant uh, had a COVID-19 exposure. So we had to put as many resources as possible to help the housing unit leaders get the tenant to get the appropriate testing. Other days, it is, you know, we got word about needing more face masks. So we reached out through a variety of networks and gathered face masks. So we would go to the housing units, drop them off to the respective community leaders. Other days, it is making sure we can engage with the community about COVID-19 concerns. This has come up quite a bit. Uh, one of the local mosques asked us to be present during a food giveaway where we can just kind of in an 
in a socially distant manner, just answer questions and concerns that a community has. And they're fantastic questions. You know, these are things that they're just looking for guidance in an interactive way to understand. Give me an example of a couple of questions you would get. The main ones that keep coming up is just why is it so hard to tell us an ending? And I think everyone comes at this pandemic in the same way they come to, towards other natural disasters, right? There's always, there's a time constraint to it. And they feel like that component, like how could we not know when this is going to end? It's just not clear to them. So being transparent with that honesty as telling them, this is what we would need to have a better answer. We don't have that information. I, I promise you, Dr. Sharfstein, they actually appreciate that level of honesty when it's clear why we don't have it. And for a lot of them, it hasn't been clear why we can't answer the, what seems to them like simple questions. So let me ask you, because I think you're one of the only people who has both of these roles, who is literally taking care of people in the ICU one day and trying to keep people out of the getting sick the next day out in a community like Baltimore. Right. I'm curious how one role helps the other. Like, for example, when you're out talking to community leaders, do you ever bring up the fact that you're in the hospital? I mean, how does it inform your discussion? So it's two ways. Actually, let me start it from the perspective of the ICU. So I've worked at the Johns Hopkins ICU, intensive care unit, specifically the Bayview location, right? That's the east side uh, or far east. And I've been there since an intern, 2010. And I can tell you, for the most part, I'm the typical demographics of patients coming in. First week, I was in the COVID-19 ICU out of the baby location. I think the one thing that really stood out to me was there was a large portion of young Hispanic Latino men. I've never seen that many Hispanic Latino men in our ICU before. So this ability to navigate both, what I would do when I would discuss with them, other than their severe illness at the moment, was just asking questions of, you know, what's your housing situation like? And then what are your plans when you return back? How to kind of overcome the morbidity of COVID-19? Because a lot of them will survive this, but the ramifications are going to be dire. So I see this because the insight of asking these very particular questions has resulted in hearing them telling me why they feel like they may have gotten it because a lot of them continue working in order to make a steady income to afford rent and food. And then also listen to their households, right? A lot of these men live with a lot of other men in order to have a shared rent or live with large families. And they would tell me about everyone else seems to be having these same fevers and so forth. So that insight has allowed me to just work with public health officials, many of which I imagine you know, Dr. Sharfstein, just to kind of raise the flags of, we need to go in, into these uh, communities and really work with them and try to understand how the COVID-19 is impacting them. And then when I, in turn, go back out to the community, actually what's really, I think, felt nicely or appreciated by the community leaders is I know what the intensive care unit results look like. You know, I will tell them in a very HIPAA-compliant manner what I'm seeing. And as one housing unit leader said to me, she goes, you know what, Dr. G, if, if I can just keep all my tenants alive, then I will consider this pandemic a success. You know, so being able to share what we see, uh, and I call us really the last line of defense. I really try to emphasize that these community leaders are your front line. If you can help us quarantine and you know, keep patients safe, they're going to stay out of our ICU, as you put it, Dr. Sharfstein. So being able to have both roles, I think, really gives me a balance for myself in an effort of how to manage them in an ICU beyond the clinical matters, 
And then especially once I'm out in the community, what factors can I help with in order to identify or resources to allocate to help them overall really uh, abide by these quarantining rules that we're uh, requesting? I want to circle back to something you said. You said a balance for yourself. Does it help you personally to be in touch with people around Baltimore to cope with some of the trauma, frankly, of seeing people struggle and in some cases die in the hospital? Yeah, Dr. Sharfstein, it it does. And this pandemic has, pre-pandemic, right, there was a world to medicine prior to this. I have always done this work. And the reason why it's brought a balance to me is, you know, I, I, depending on the outlets, I can quote academic literature, I can cite evidence-based medicine, but the other part of it that I'll share with you, a lot of it has to do with my own personal narrative. I'm a son of Greek immigrants born in Baltimore City. And being able to work with the community just, you know, fulfills this promise in me that I had as a child growing up, right? I, I lived in an immigrant community where community, networking, culture were ours. You know, they were tightly knit. And being able to have that ability to do that now, especially now in this pandemic, feel like puts me at ease of what I saw my own community members, the adults when I was a child do during really difficult times. So yes, I, I think for my well-being, it, it's a sufficient part in order to know that we're doing what we can to keep patients well in the hospital, but also keep them safe out of the hospital. Well, uh, thank you very much for sharing that. And I think it's very clear that you're saving lives both ways these days. It's Again, it's an honor to be able to be positioned in both roles. I'm fortunate enough, though, to have great colleagues on both sides. Uh, in the hospital, I think there's obvious partners, right, from your nursing colleagues to your technicians to your physician colleagues. But out in the community, I'm blessed to have great colleagues as well who recognize the significance of doing this. So while I'm there, I'm, I'm one of others. Uh, Dr. Sharfstein, and I would include you in that as well. I, I, you know, we are doing what we can to kind of follow what Dr. Fauci said in a great Washington Post article. When they asked him what lessons he learned during the HIV epidemic, he made it clear. You have to re- communicate with the community. You, you can't just be an uh, have the authorities dictate one thing and not interact with a community who's going to have these anxieties and stresses as they try to abide by them. And so I think that's important to, to really emphasize. Well, I think you're doing that both with your words and your deeds. So thank you very, very much for joining me today. No worries. Thank you, Dr. Sharfstein. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Public Health on Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Please send questions to be covered in future podcasts to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. This podcast is produced by Josh Sharfstein, Lindsay Smith-Rogers, and Lamare Morales. Audio production by Niall Owen-McCusker and Spencer Greer, with support from Chip Hickey. Distribution by Nick Moran. Thank you for listening.